One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome group chat Richard and Gavin in this week. Gavin, how are you doing? Not too bad, Richard. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, we're going to jump straight into it. Nice. Obviously, Zara is away this week. Um, but one thing I've actually noticed over the last number of weeks and months, particularly in my own inbox, is people asking how Ibrahim Alaga and his family have been mm. doing mm. since coming back from Gaza. Obviously, we've had a focus on Gaza over the last number of months since mm. then because showed no signs of abating. But there has been an interest in how those who've come back from Gaza have fared. Yeah, of course. Younger kids. And of course, while they were away, you were receiving voice notes from Ibrahim talking about the situation before they were able to get out and we were able to share them on the podcast. And there were a lot of people then very invested in him getting home and how they're getting on since. Yeah. So one thing we wanted to do today was to give Sammy, uh, who is eight years old, uh, from Blanchardstown, of course, he wanted to have an opportunity to, to explain to people in Ireland, to kids of his own age, what life is like for kids in Gaza. So we spoke to Ibrahim and Sammy earlier on, and here's how we got on. Guys, delighted to have you back. Thank on. you very much. Great to have you. Thanks. Thanks, Adon. Ibrahim, how has life been since you've gotten back to Ireland? Well, um, for me and my family here, we're doing great, I think. Um, we're back to normal life. Um, but it's very stressful um, when it comes to our family and our friends and people in Gaza. Yeah. Um, you know what's going on. A huge shortage of food and water and um, people just living in the streets and tents and the pictures we see are are making us really stressful, you know. The last time that you were on the podcast in, in audio note form, because you were sending audio notes to Richard yeah. and then passed them on, um, you and was it 80 or 90 other people from your extended family yes. all living in yeah, one yeah, house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are they now? Where are they all? Oh, they're um, scattered everywhere. So uh, some of them went to Rafa. Some of them went close to the uh, coast. They, it's an area called Mawasi. So it, it, these are the areas that were supposed to be the safe areas. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Many people have lost their lives over there. Um, but the, yeah, it's everywhere uh, around the areas. Sammy, what's it like being back in Ireland? Better than staying in Gaza. Yeah. If we're there, we, we will be so hungry and thirsty. And it's very cold. And it, it's now, it's very cold over there. So they have no clothes. Yeah. Because I remember people might have seen you were at the weekend. You were flying your kite and you said a few words, which people saw. What well, Could you just tell people? Because I mean, I think it was very, very powerful in getting people to know what's life like for kids of your age in Gaza. That must be... That was very, very impressive what you did. What What is life like for kids like your cousins in Gaza? Like, they told me they're hungry and tired. And they told me last time they called me, they told me that the, uh, a rocket came right beside him and all the sand came on their hair. Yeah. Ibrahim, that must be incredibly difficult because people will have seen since you know, before Christmas when we were last talking to you, things get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And people get forced further and further Squeezed, into safe yeah. zone to safe zone to safe zone, now down to Rafa in a yeah. corner, effectively, where more than 1.4 million people are squeezed. 
knowing so many people as you do who are in that situation and hearing even as, you know, your kids are hearing this as well, how difficult and how how close, you know, to home this is becoming, that must be hugely worrying for, for you. Absolutely. As, as he just said, uh, there was a story where um, I think a week ago there was a missile just beside where his cousins were staying and everyone was just covered in sand and, and dust and all of that. So you just hear the stories. And now, even with Rafah being also, um, they're talking about, uh, you know, going inside of Rafah. Where are people going to go after? There's nowhere else to go, you know. So it's very, very stressful. Uh, I have a brother and a sister-in-law still over there. I have aunts and uncles and cousins. They're still over there as well. We're always worried about them. Um, unfortunately, that's the situation. Yeah. Just take that one example of the, the rocket that fell just beside where Sammy's cousins are. Um, I know that the, sometimes the information isn't always very clearly offered anyway, but was there any kind of a explanation or a justification, any kind of public reasoning as to why that sort of area might have been targeted? No, it's, it's very random. Um, <clears throat> Most that's the case really most of the time is you will see a missile coming down. Nobody will know why or why they hit this area or it's getting very random and it's honestly people don't know am I, am I going to stay alive or this is going to be my final day. That's everyone is talking and everyone is saying that now. Yeah. Do you miss your cousins over there Sammy? Yes. Yeah. What ages are your cousins? One eight. One eight and one, like four or five. Yeah. And that's the thing, Ibrahim, is that we've seen so much how kids are very much at the front line yeah, of yeah, this yeah. and have been all the way through yeah, since yeah, yeah. when you guys were trapped in Gaza. It was, you know, such a young age of people who were trapped, yes. who have been killed, who have been, you know, wounded in yeah. all of these bomb attacks. That is something which it's difficult to comprehend when you're sitting over here in the Western world. Absolutely. It, it, it's a lot different when you're in there living it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you, how, how do how do you think, I mean, because you've had plenty of time now since you've come back to sort of see how the world is treating this situation. When you see how the Irish government is reacting, when you see how Europe is reacting to it. Unfortunately, all that? now, if we take it on government's level, unfortunately, nothing has happened. No one is able to stop Israel from what it's doing. And it's just keep, it's going on and on and on. There's no limits. Every day it's worse and worse. People, honestly, people are dying now from hunger, mm. right? No one is stopping that. No one is stepping in to help, right? On the people side, I see, I mean, the, the Palestinian um, Israeli conflict is gathering more and more attention among people. Uh, we saw the protest that I think was last Saturday. It was massive, huge. A lot of people are more aware of what's going on, but unfortunately they can't do anything. It's the government's and nothing is happening, nothing is changing. Mm. Are you disappointed with how Absolutely. Ireland is handling it? Well, no. Um, the government at least. Well, it's, it's, I'd say it's, it's the best in the Western world, but I don't think it's still enough yet. I yeah. think there's still more that needs to be done. And what would you like to see them do? Um, uh, a more clear message of call for a ceasefire, um, a, I don't know, uh, joining South Africa maybe, and I'm not sure Brazil as well in, in the International Court mm. of uh, uh, Justice. Um, boycott, yeah. more boycott. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, ex expelling the Israeli embassy. Mm. 
We were talking on, on their walk down to the studio and we were talking about the, the events of the last couple of days. The US apparently trying to negotiate another level of a humanitarian ceasefire while at the same time vetoing exactly. somebody else's motion. Exactly. How do you feel when you see stuff like that where America is on one hand saying that it's trying to be constructive but at the same time also standing in the way of someone else doing just it? Said it's just thought, that's what they're saying. But in action, what their the real action is, is very opposing. It's um, They're still... Um, arming Israel, I believe. They're still, you know, um, they're not putting any pressure at all to stop what's going on. Uh, I, I don't know. They they don't do any action, I can say. Sammy, can you tell us, just because people mightn't remember what it was like when you were in Gaza. I remember there was a lot of loud noises. You got woken up in the middle of the night. Can you just remember what was, what was scary when you were in Gaza? I remember like two times before the last time I hear I heard like uh, Israel bombing right beside me I it was very loud and the other one was was by Palestine uh, putting missiles to Israel yeah and what was that like I mean that's very very close to where you guys were wasn't it yeah I thought it's like right where we were like it well the the missiles were came out from it was right beside we even saw the missiles yeah and your classmates, people, kids your age from where you're living now, I mean, they will have no, they'll have never seen anything like this. They'll have never been through anything like this. I mean, it must have been really scary for you and your your brother and sister. Yeah, even well, my brother went to sleep when, like I told you, when, when the, when the, when the Israel missile came, my brother wake up, he was crying. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's important that kids in Ireland know what it's like for kids their own age who are living in Gaza? Because it's very hard for them to to sort of know or to see what that's like, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It must be a bit strange for you, Sammy, when you're, you've come home now and you're back living your, your normal life. You're living at home, you're going to school in Dublin and all of your classmates might want to ask you questions about what it was like when you're there. But I suppose so much of it was so scary that you'd rather not think about it too much. Yeah, some of them even told me how, how how did, like, what happened? What did you do to Israel so they came and did the war? So I told them that uh, Palestine first in, like, Saturday, they told me that, uh, I tell them that they, they like, every second missile was going to Israel. Mm. It must be hard, Ibrahim, to have to, you know, for your kids to have gone through this. And again, absolutely no fault they were caught in a situation which has, you know, appalled everyone around the world in terms of what's happening to, again, innocent kids like your own. I mean, it yeah, must be yeah, really yeah, difficult yeah, to, yeah, to get yeah. your head around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank God they're strong, resilient. They are a lot better now. But I remember the days when we first came from Gaza, especially my youngest one. He used to wake up a lot of times in the middle of the night. I believe he used to have nightmares or something. He used to, for example, if there was a bang, if something fall, fell on the ground, for example, made a bang noise, it, it it seemed like it reminded him of something, you know, and he used to get really scared. Um, but thank God, all of that phase is gone now. They're back to normal. I, I can see they're back to normal life now, all yeah. three of them. Because I remember even when we were talking back when you were over there, like that was just such a big thing for you was the idea of getting your kids to safety back into school yes, yes. and just that, that sense of safety. And yeah, 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 because yeah, it yeah. must have felt like the furthest thing yeah. 
of imaginable freak absolutely. lives when you're in it. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially when there is all those times, and I'm sure it's something you're experiencing now on the other side of it, when communication became difficult, yeah. when the mobile line, lines were down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must yeah. have felt that you were, you may never get out of it. And that's exactly. something. Exactly. How yeah, does it feel yeah. to be on the other side of that now for your, you know, your family it's, members it's, who are there? It's, it's a lot worse now, yeah. believe me. I mean, when I was talking to them, they were telling me that the days when I was there, it was like a paradise to what they're living right now. And it, it's it's absolutely hell now, you know. Um, I, ca I just can't imagine how how life, how bad it is right now. They're telling me they're sleeping in tents. It's very cold. They didn't prepare themselves for the, the winter months. Clothes and blankets and all of that. Um, a lot of time it just rains and they just find out that the, the, the place there is it's just flooded with water. Mm. Um, no food, it's really difficult to get food or water or anything. So, and, and the amount of people and the diseases and all of that and nothing to do for children, for example. The parents don't want the children to go far away for them or play outside or something like this. It is a, it's hell really. Mm. You mentioned food, and that's something which everyone is talking about now because the word famine is now being used to describe yes. what's happening yeah. Yeah. in Gaza. Because remember, when you were there, and there was it was very difficult at times yes. for food, but bread in particular was yeah. something that was hard to yeah. come by. Yeah. I mean, when you see now that it's very difficult to even get any aid in, and there was the story there from CNN today yeah. that Israel uh, fired upon an aid convoy yes. carrying food to northern Gaza. Yes. 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 I mean... I don't think the people over in this part of the world really understand how little food is actually Absolutely. getting in there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm seeing, I've seen reports that people are saying that they saw some cases where people are dying because of hunger, mm. um, and especially in the north part of Gaza, that is the area where um, food is is very very limited. So I, I I don't know how people are surviving. To be honest with you, what are your family living off? Very little. Um, so food, you can get food, but it's because it's very limited, it's extremely expensive. So they were telling me, for example, a packet of flour that used to cost before the war less than a euro is now costing around 15 to 20 euro. Yeah, God, right. Wow. So um, and it's because everything is extremely limited, right? So um, they go, they buy stuff, but it's they try to, you know, just barely make it. It's a lot more difficult, as I said, in the north. Mm. It's a complete different story over there. Um, but that's the situation. One of the things that strikes me when you're sitting here talking to Sammy and Sammy's talking about the conversations that he's had with his own classmates since he's come home is that one of the greatest tragedies of any conflict like this is that it kind of takes away that level of innocence that any child is going to have. Yeah, Suddenly yeah, you have yeah. to explain to them geopolitics, exactly, complex exactly. history and yeah, tribalism. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. like as a father, seeing your children then dragged into this very tumultuous world must be a very difficult thing to try and explain that, to them. That's that's the faith of us people from Gaza. That's what we are faced with, you know. Um, people in Gaza are even facing more problems than this. So... Um, we're just in a situation where we have to do this, you know, we have to, young young children are becoming men, you know. It's far too early in ages. Yeah, well. yeah. Sammy, do you remember when you first went over to Gaza the last time you stayed in your dad's apartment in, in Gaza City? 
Do you remember when you, you, you lost some, some things or some things were left behind there? You left. Yeah. Do you remember what you left behind there? I left my, my I had like a, what, a table and stuff. I had a trophy of a football, a football. Uh, tra- uh, it was a World Cup trophy, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, like a different one. Yeah. A grey one. And, and my football shirt, the Ronaldo one, I left it there. I left my money there. Yeah. I left like everything. I thought we the war's gonna finish and we're gonna come back. Yeah. So I thought I'm gonna leave my stuff here. You thought it'd all be safe there, yeah. I just got him new desk and new furniture for yeah. their room. <laughs> it was only a week and they just lost it. Yeah. Yeah. For people who didn't get to see the kite that you had last weekend, Sammy, just tell us about it and, and the message that you're trying to share. Uh I was trying to like say to everyone to stop the war in Gaza. But America's help like in the when when we were in Gaza, I thought Israel's gonna finish the war. But then when it's almost gonna finish the war, America America came and helped them. Mm-hmm. It must be. I mean, you must be very proud of. Sammy in many ways that he's this is something that I remember you, you you told me yourself Sammy is that what you want to do when you grow up is be a journalist so you could talk about Gaza and explain Gaza to the world you must be very proud of him he's into politics now yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I mean what is your hope I mean it's very hard to have any hope I suppose when you're in your position because it's it must be very hard to make sense of everything that happens on a daily basis and the situation gets worse and worse but I mean is your hope at some point in the, in the near future well, to go back and to visit Gaza again? Uh, that's a dream, you know. Unfortunately, when I see the videos and the images from Gaza, I mean, I feel so disappointed. All the nice memories that I had, the years I went to university, our apartment, our memories as a family. It's it's very difficult. I don't know if, if Gaza's going to be ever going to be, you know, the lovely city that I have in my mind. I don't know if it's ever going to be that, that again. Hopefully it will be. Yeah. I just hope ceasefire comes in soon. This madness stops as soon as possible. But believe me, even when it stops, there's going to be a lot, a huge number of problems. I mean, amount of children that lost their parents, you know, um, schools, universities, hospitals, all gone. There's no houses. It's going to be a, a very difficult situation, even if things stop tomorrow. Yeah. And Sammy, if the war did end, would you like to go back and visit? Your cousins and well, friends. When they cousins. rebuild, they'll go back. Yeah. Is that something you'd be looking forward to do? Yeah. Awesome. Well, Sammy, you're very brave and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, thank you for skipping your football as well. You were supposed <laughs> to have football today, but you were very good to come in and talk to us. So thanks yeah. for coming in. Sammy Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us. In the thank you very much, guys. So massive thank you to Sammy and to Ibrahim for coming in and we'll see how they get on, I suppose, yeah. uh, in the future ne- too. Next time Sammy's back, he's going to be hosting. But yeah, we did say that. Yeah. Guest host in the future when any of us is out is, is going to be Sammy Alaga. So much to look forward to. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, to the improvement of the show uh, <laughs> when Sammy steps in. Um, but the other story, a more domestic story, Gavin, obviously that has not 
gone away in any way and that the broadcaster in question has not been able to put away mm. is the RTE situation. Why is it back in the headlines since last week? Because it really has blown up again. Yeah, so the potted history is that while we were recording last week's episode, there was a meeting of the Oireachtas Media Committee. Kevin Backhurst was in talking about some of the previous redundancy schemes and whatnot. People remember the controversy around the departure of one of the previous Chief Financial Officers, Breda O'Keefe, and the fact that her redundancy was signed off on personally by D Forbes, but not supervised by anyone else. Um, Kevin Backhurst revealed at that meeting that Breda O'Keefe had received a lump sum payment of €450,000 upon departing. That obviously perked up a lot of political antennae because... Stop stop on that point because that was actually something which... The the nature of how that actually was all handled in the moment and how that was actually revealed was quite dramatic. Yeah, really remarkably so because um, naturally enough, the report that had been commissioned by RT and published by McCann Fitzgerald, the solicitors, had investigated who knew all about this, was it part of the previous runnancy scheme, who had oversight, who was responsible. It effectively laid the, the whole thing at the feet of Dee Forbes. She had personally signed off on this, hadn't brought it to the attention of the senior leadership team as she was otherwise required to do. But nonetheless, that's how it happened. But we didn't know the exact financial spec of it. Alan Dillon, the Fine Gael TD for Mayo, is asking questions of Kevin Backhurst. He says, how much did she get? Kevin Backhurst says, I can't tell you that. It's, it's confidential. There, there's certain rules around it. Mm-hmm. And then Alan says, but we're under privilege here. You're in the Rockless Committee and transparency would be good for everyone. And Kevin Backhurst, 42 seconds after saying it's confidential that he couldn't tell it, says that it was €450,000. There was such an about turn in it that, I, that it was quite... It was quite dramatic, really. because mm-hmm. he, So Alan Dillon asked the question for a second time yeah. and he started to hear the same sort of thing of like, look, there's confidentiality agreements relating to all of this. And then he just gets to a point where he just says, she got €450,000. Mm. And he was asked to repeat that. I just found that that was quite yeah. dramatic. I think that probably did provoke something from members who were there. There was purportedly a gasp in the room. Obviously, I wasn't there because we were here doing last week's episode. But a lot of members said that there I were... It's very Shakespearean there was a gasp li- in the room. <laughs> there were literal gasps in the room. And you'd wonder, were the gasps because of the volume of the payment that she got? Mm. Or were the gasps because Kevin Backhurst went from, I can't tell you, to here I am yeah. telling you in the space of literally 42 seconds. Mm. So either way, it, it naturally kickstarted the whole fresh batch of inquiry around, was that an appropriate amount to pay her? Was it all legally sound? Were there tax implications? Apparently that's now being investigated as well. But then it sort of kicked off this whole new thread pulling of what other payoffs have other departing senior members of RT staff been given? And that's where things get a little bit more muddy for the present administration because up until the last seven days, everything we were talking about within RTE was stuff that Kevin Backhurst had inherited. They were stuff that was done before his watch. Legacy matters. Legacy matters. And that he was trying to clean up the situation left behind by others. Where we get into in the last couple of seven days is stuff that's happened in the last seven months, which is when Kevin Backhurst himself was in. So first of all, there's the one that we don't know very much about, which is the uh, Breed O'Keefe successor, Richard Collins. People might remember him last summer. He was the chief financial officer who couldn't remember what his salary was. Well, see, this is how it's remembered now. But like he initially said he didn't really know, but then he just basically said he initially... He kind of indicated he didn't know, but then he just refused to say it and then he did say it, mm. approximately. In a Backhurst-esque turn of events. Which, yeah, exactly, it, it is actually. There's a, there's a strange parallel in that, yeah. but that, that, that's that's what Richard mm. Collins is effectively known in the public eye for, yes. is that time where he didn't want to say his salary. Yeah, which is a slightly unfair thing to remember him for, but nonetheless, it is the, the, the standout memory from all of those meetings. He departed in around October of last year. Yeah. His departure was the subject of some mediation. There was something of a payout whether it's a severance, whether it's redundancy, we actually don't know how to characterise these yeah. things, which makes the reporting on it very woolly sometimes, but we don't know 
was it severance was it redundancy we don't know what title to give it either way he departed he was given a payment of some sort but because there was mediation involved there was a non-disclosure aspect to it so we don't know what that was the other is Rory Coveney the departed director of strategy he was the master finder the driving force behind the ill-fated toy show musical I think we're actually ill-fated we're disastrous required to call it ill-fated I think before we, get, we say the name anymore it's a very flourishy word for, for what it was which was an unmitigated disaster That's too, right. I feel too, like we're being diplomatic by calling it ill-fated I know yeah but so to, to the, the man with sort of key responsibility for the 2.3 million euro fiasco that was toy show the musical mm. is Rory Coveney and he left under the watch of Kevin Backhurst. So that's where it gets interesting. There's, there's actually a question to that because Kevin Backhurst, you might remember, was was effectively acting as an almost semi-interim yes. DG for a couple of weeks before he got the job. People might remember D Forbes left early. She was recommended for, for removal by the board. So she departed early. There was this void. Kevin Backhurst was going to be coming in anyway. So in a sort of an interim de facto way, he was sort of doing the job or preparing the stuff for his first day. People might remember that the weekend before Kevin Backhurst was due to officially start... There was a statement issued by Rory Coveney mm-hmm. saying that he understood the need for there to be a fresh new broom, that RTE couldn't have these lingering clouds still over it because of his association with the previous system and because it would be better for everyone to have a fresh start, that he was resigning with immediate effect. Now, bear in mind, immediate effect. So he was gone the weekend before Kevin Backhurst formally came in. And the public presentation was that he had resigned. Now, on the Monday, Kevin Backhurst formally gets his feet under the door. He announces this new senior management team. There was a press conference at Montrose. Both you and Zara were yeah, both there. It, th- it felt like it was about a 30-minute press conference yeah. in very much in keeping with the messaging of this is a new and open administration mm. and I'm here to answer every single question. Mm. But the fact is that one of the questions which was asked by Phil Sheehan of The Independent related to Rory Coveney. Yeah. And though the the question that Kevin Backhurst gave there I think has probably become more pertinent now because he has now gone on and characterised it as saying well I did indicate that there was some form of payment or exit package to Rory Coveney on the way out the door whereas if you look back at what was actually said at the time probably doesn't mirror it exactly no. to be kind anyway. But also if it is now, it's now been characterised because Kevin Backhurst has been dealing with some questions about this again this week and he said on Radio 1 on Monday that he basically agreed to roll Rory Coveney's duties into those of Adrian Lynch who was the acting DG uh, during the previous time after D Forbes had gone. So basically the role of Director of Strategy was being made redundant so because the job was being abolished Rory Coveney was basically given a, a severance or a redundancy on his way out roughly equivalent to 12 months of his salary. Now, you could make that explanation at the time and it would carry a lot of water. You could say it's a big sum of money, but you have to break eggs to make an omelette. And if you want to try and have a fresh start and you want to get rid of some of the personnel, this is the consequence Mm. of doing that. Had they said that up front, I suspect it would have been a lot more tolerable for a lot of people. But instead, you're told he is resigning so as to clear the way for a new regime. Then you're told afterwards, well, he's resigning upon negotiation where mm. he's been given 12 months salary to, to go away, which is simply just not the presentation that we're all given last summer. And this is where, as you say, things get interesting because this is the watch of Kevin Backhurst. Yeah. And up until now, it's been legacy stuff. So that's the key political pressure which has been put on Kevin Backhurst because I think on, until this point, people who are politicians, and that's actually across parties as well, whether it's mm. in the government parties or it's in Sinn Féin or independents or other opposition groupings, they've generally all, whenever I speak to them about anything to do with this, they're all generally quite happy with some of the reforms put in place by Kevin Backhurst. Mm. They're all like, let's wait and see. He talks the talk. He seems to be walking the walk up until this point. But that seems to be where there's now a bit of any of that confidence has been, has been built there, particularly in government circles, 
does seem to be faltering because these are big amounts of money in terms of exit payments, which are only sort of properly coming to light now in terms of how we see them as the general public. Mm. And if some of them happened on his watch or he had signed or he allowed there to be confidentiality agreements, the question which people in government are particularly asking is, why did he feel the need to do that? Mm. So we don't know again what the exact circumstances were of Richard Collins uh, going on. He was still there for a couple of months after Kevin Backhurst formally took the reins. He wasn't in this newly remodelled senior leadership team. But one of the, the vagaries is that we don't know whether his role was made redundant. There isn't a new CFO as far as I know, but that's because of a recruitment embargo. We actually don't know whether the position was abolished. So if it were abolished, he's entitled to a redundancy. But if this was some sort of negotiated, mediated departure, then we simply don't know the circumstances. So we don't know why there might have been an NDA involved. Perhaps there's some other completely extraneous circumstances. Um, and on Rory Coveney, there, there wasn't any NDA involved in that one. So at least Kevin Backers was able to say last weekend what was going on. But the, the way in which this matters politically is that from the government's perspective, yes, RTE has been a, a bit of a disaster for the last eight months. But the government knows that, A, it cannot afford to let RTE die. It can't allow it to, to wither on the vine. So it needs to have a public broadcaster which is resourced to do all the stuff that private sector comparators like us just can't do. Um, and But that they can't go ahead writing blank checks until they know that there's been some sort of cultural change or some new leaf being turned over in RTE. And it's really demoralising for a lot of ministers to find out that now when Kevin Backhurst was coming in last summer and he came in with all this this wave of goodwill and with good blessings and people saying, you know, you have a big job ahead of you, but we all wish you well, to discover that while he was apparently being so transparent as to give half-hour press conferences with all of the country's media yeah, gathered outside many the Many lengthy interviews as well at the time. Like completely, yeah. like he was a very open book at the time. But at the same time, he was negotiating deals which A, resulted in the expenditure of money that may not have had to be spent, and B, that he was doing it with a level of secrecy that even he now seems to recognise as being somehow regrettable. You know, Kevin Backhurst was in talking to Catherine Martin on Monday. He was asked to go away and get more legal advice to see are there any details relating to Richard Collins in particular that can be published that maybe he can get legal advice that certain amounts are, are free to disclose. I got a message from one cabinet minister who saw our reporting on that afterwards and they said the idea that he is now looking for credit for trying to unseal mm. a deal that he himself signed off on and sealed was nonsense. Nonsense yeah. was not the word in the text, but it's, this is a, this, sometimes this goes out pre-Watershed, so I can't use the exact word. It starts with a B. Um, and that, that's kind of where we are, that where previously there was all this goodwill of Backhurst will do the rehabilitation and then we can figure out how we're going to pay for all of this. That rehabilitation dramatically flipped backwards this week and there are some now who don't want to press the nuclear button. Like they don't want to... to you know, I find, yeah, I find this talk because the talk the nuclear button is there's question marks and some journalists have asked you know whether Kevin Backer should resign Yeah, I don't think there's any that, that, that's not an immediate no. option on the table but There's a genuine question around the obfuscation around why there was an NDA and why there has been such a competing or slightly tortured explanation yeah. as to how some of these came about So this is going to be a, this is I, th I think it's fair to characterise this now as almost a kind of a poisonous situation in terms of how festering it has become now for the government because they've now sort of seemed to get a bit of a hang of it in terms of where RTE was going. Kevin was had his feet under the, the desk and things were moving in the right direction. Mm. So if the politicians are feeling the heat over it and they're starting to get a little bit aggrieved on it, it's interesting as well that people I know within RTE who've been at the last number of town hall meetings as they're known as in yeah. RTE, that they think that they've noticed a change in Kevin as well. How so? In terms that they feel that he's become a little bit more downbeat, that they've noticed a change in his attitude. Now, We've asked him to appear on the podcast today. He's not available today. 
says that's probably something that's going to happen in the future. So you can hold out for the Director General Before of RTE, future being on the podcast. But me Alaga will give him such a grill. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the thing is that there, there, there is, and this is, you can only go by a couple of people's different feelings on this, is that they feel that he's a bit more downbeat, that they aren't seeing the same zeal that they saw at the start of things. And maybe their assessment is that he's understood how difficult a job actual cultural change mm. is in an organisation of the likes of RTE. And that, that might well be the case, that it's only a fixed term tenure anyway. I think it's a fixed appointment of is it six or seven years and that when you he, he took the job not knowing that any of this was coming down the line he'd already been appointed as the the acting or the forthcoming DG before the controversy around the payments to Ryan Tuberty and then everything else that followed so this is not the job that he necessarily signed up for you can understand when he gets the job okay you come with a certain amount of zeal as you say and you come at it with all this bucket loads of energy and you hope that with a few months heavy lifting you might be back at what should be square one he can move on from there You can understand if he's a little demoralised or depleted by how long it's taken to really rectify the ship. But unfortunately, it is the consequences of his own actions in the first couple of weeks, which are now causing it to be so difficult. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Speaking of stories that have never, ever gone away, Gavin... (laughs) Can you which see one? where I'm going? No, I don't know which one you're talking about. The Metro Link. Oh, that one. Okay, because there's two part, two stories in this part, both of which seem to have been going on for an interminable amount of time. The Let's art- start with the Metro. The artist formerly known as formerly known as Metro North uh, is back in the headlines, um, and we have a projected date for when mm. trams, trains, I should say, will be rolling down that what, track. What, what is that date? Uh, it'll be 2030, 2034, 2035. Okay. So, so that's not so much a date as a window, really. It's, a, it's like a National Children's Hospital level of vagueness. But there is a, a feeling now that this is, well, I'm actually going to double back on that immediately. There was a feeling, as you speak to some people, that this is now the home stretch for Metrolink to mm. finally get it home because it's now entered the onboard Planala oral hearings um, on planning. So you were there on Monday. These are long-running hearings which are going to be going on for a couple of weeks. Six weeks. You were there for day one. Yes. At least. What did you hear? Ah, I heard some great things. Uh, The Metrolink is going to save the city. Uh, and it could well do mm. if you actually I mean I don't I think I, look let, let, let's run through some of the facts about it Metrolink is something which has been talked about since 1985 when Charlie Hawhey mentioned it uh, in the doll, and only 39 years later we finally got into oral planning we're finally oral. well actually we had previously been at this point there's actually another point worth mentioning 15 years ago we got to the oral planning hearing stages okay. for the Metro the plug was pulled very soon after that um 
because of well, yes, obvious Ev- reasons. Events occurred. Events yes. occurred. Financial crisis. The plug was pulled. 2015, it was revived. 2018, the plan was to bring it all the way to Sandyford. That was revised back um, because it would cause too much disruption in terms of the mm. Green Lewis line. Yeah. So maybe just to, as an interruption there, just to explain to people, particularly non-Dubliners, so the, gr- the oh, Green... We all know about it. Yeah, but the Green Lewis line, which in its in initial incarnation ran from Stephen's Green out to Sandyford, it was built with the prospect of being future upgraded to a metro, which means heavier trains running at higher frequency. One mm-hmm. of the concerns that's arisen in the course of that is that one of the communities that the Lewis line runs through it's quite important, uh, they say, for you to be able to cross the Lewis line and get from one side to the other. There's a particular shop that's at one Lewis platform and people from around there are able to cross the track. If you upgrade it to a metro, the trains run so frequently that basically they say it's like having an archery through the city. Now, everyone concedes that's a great inconvenience for them. Their local politicians are certainly gone out of their way to stress how much of an inconvenience that is for them. Whether the entirety of Dublin North and South should have a massive rail project delayed because of the inconvenience to one stretch of road is an open debate. Yeah, and That's one which is going to be, this is the whole purpose of yeah. these hearings is for on board Planola to make a decision on it. But that, that's why they, they, the plan for now is for the Metro to stop at Stevens Green rather than going the whole way to the south. Well, it's the, 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 the end point for Metrolink as it currently stands, the, the end term, terminus after it's started all the way north to Swords and come mm. past through Dublin Airport, through Glasnevin, through O'Connell Street, to St. Stephen's Green, and then it ends in Charlemont, which is basically just north of Ranelagh, where the mm. Green Line Lewis stop currently is. That has provoked something of a backlash from local uh, politicians, including Michael McDool, Jim O'Callaghan. A lot of people have aimed a lot of flack at these people mm. for raising this concern because they say, we've had so many holdups here the traffic problem in Dublin is so chronic at this point. Uh, TII, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, which is pushing, of course, the project. Mm. It says Dublin is now the 35th most congested city in the world, which may not sound that high, but if you count every single city in the world yes. with <laughs> massive transport yeah. problems, that's very it, like, it's, high indeed. It's not the 35th like, highest capital. It's the 35th yeah. highest city. city. Yeah. yeah. Think about all the cities in America and India and Brazil and China, which must be thronged mm. with traffic. And little old Dublin is right up there at 35th. Um, there's also the fact that they had stats that 213 hours uh, from every commuter is wasted every year behind the wheel in traffic um, that this all adds up over time to just being a 2 billion euro drain on the Irish economy every year 213 hours I'd well believe it Sometimes driving every to, year. Driving driving to get here to the podcast studio yeah. is often the traffic heaviest. Oh time no, of the it week. often happens. We were only discussing earlier on that like sometimes I'm often in Leinster House for the twelve thirteen news and I get to leave at about twenty to one, quarter to one to come mm. back out here to do two o'clock. One time a couple of weeks ago, I literally was walking into the room at a minute to two, didn't get to stop for lunch anyway. It literally just took that long with the traffic. Today it was I was back in the building at about a quarter past one. It took half an hour to make yeah. the journey. But other days it could take seventy five minutes. And that's at lunchtime. That's before you're factoring in a rainy day or one collision on the M fifty or someone has a breakdown on an off ramp and the whole thing backs up. And then you throw an extra ten years of population onto that and economic growth before you might have the metro up and running. That's like that's the key here. Yeah. Is that we already have a huge spike in population growth even since you know, the latest iteration of the Metrolink was unveiled. Mm. By the time it's actually built, best estimates or best possible case, best scenario being 2034, 2035, mm. it's going to be a very different city once again. I'll run around through some of the, the potential hitches here because some people probably don't understand what actually is going to be disrupted once this thing is up and running in terms of demolition jobs. 
OPW, the Office of Public Works, which is one of the bodies which is going to be presenting at these oral healing, hearings over the next number of weeks, it has grave concerns about the future of Stevens Green, the park itself, because okay. effectively the stop for Metrolink will be in the green. Mm. So there, it's going to require a great bit of digging up. TII says it'll actually preserve, you know, to the best of its ability, yeah. the, the, the character and, you know, the nature of St. Stephen's mm. Green Park. But they, but OPW, which is responsible for running the park, says there's going to be severe disruption there uh, and it will be like a very much a very impactful change yeah. there. There's a no, there's an office block or a, actually an apartment block, I should say, with about 70 something apartments, which is going to have to be bulldozed for that. That is the mark of its the gym. And the mark of its leisure centre and the swimming pool and all of that. And that, it's the one just behind Tower Street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a relatively Street's modern largest. development. That's only like a, a late 2000s development, I think. So the idea that you'd have to flatten that after barely 20 years of existence. Exactly. So that's that. going to have to make way to go. Uh, the Carlton Cinema on O'Connell Street, which is basically, I'm not actually sure what's actually in there in the moment, mm. but they're going to protect the facade of it and bulldoze the rest of it. I don't, I like, some people have been complaining about that there, for there to be another demolition of a building on O'Connell Street is, yeah. is awful, but... I, you, you could also make the counterpoint, what's another demolition on a street which is half demolished down that end anyway. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's the other one which is Hedigan's Pub which was in Ulysses uh, by James Joyce. It's in Glasnevin, the Brian Baru pub. Uh, so that's going to be um, effectively bulldozed as well. So all of these different parties to this and all different politicians and other members of the public who want to raise their hands, they're going to get to do so over the next six weeks. So the point to finish off on the Metrolink is mm. that even if they get through all this and there's Dozens to over 100, I think it's 100, 130 something people have indicated that they okay. want to speak at these. Even if you get this clear and it gets the thumbs up, it's not over yet. Because <laughs> then the, the TII has to bring that planning permission and make a business case to government uh, to get the final say and the final go ahead. And then you start putting shovels in the soil and it still takes six or seven or eight years after that to actually deliver. I don't think I'll ever get to commute on Metrolink <laughs> until I retire, but we'll no. wait and see. But other infrastructure actually was in the headlines as well. This yeah. Uh, actually, well, let me, let me put a question to you. As, as a firm League of Ireland man, in fact, as a co-owner of a League of Ireland club, actually, um, a League of Ireland club, which is about to get a new premises. Part owner, not co-owner. Which, which owner been, makes it look like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a one of two shareholders no, like in a club. A, you're like a David Gold figure. Um, <laughs> Dalymount Park is is now finally getting the go-ahead for a massive redevelopment, but it's been a very long and tortuous road to get there and getting sure. City Council approval and finding out whether other clubs are going to be stakeholders in that has been a really torturous thing. And there's other League of Ireland clubs like Finn Harps in the middle are trying to do a ground redevelopment at the moment. They're not sure how it's going to go and that might raise questions about the viability of the club. Given all of that, yep. how do you feel about the government almost overnight, willy-nilly, with apparently no conditions attached, writing a cheque for a GAA ground in another jurisdiction for 50 million quid. I'm going to surprise you and say absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. The the, the money for Casement Park, the 50 million euros, yeah. that is being given by the Republic of Ireland government towards Casement Park, which as you rightly say is in Belfast, mm. that's not coming from football money. Like it's not from the same pot. Yeah. Like it's not as if this is taking more money from other sporting projects mm. in this country. So it's not this is part of shared Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. This is a long-term fund which... Mm the government here has been putting money away into. Mm. And the bigger project is obviously the A5, but Casement Park is something which is interesting. Yeah. Mm. But also, I, I see, I've seen people like Damien Duff, for example, yeah. uh, raise questions as to whether or not this is good use of money. Well, there's a kind of an inequality of treatment. They said even if they're coming out of different pots and this doesn't deduct from the money that's available for League of Ireland grounds, the ease with which the GAA was able to get money out of the government when it takes so long for soccer clubs to get it from, from the same source. I can see it, pot. yeah. I can see the point, but as I say, I think it's just a different pot of money. It's an infrastructure project for a better island of Ireland. There's the Euro 2028 question. 
uh, money is needed for that because Stormont is still uh, about whether or not they're going to give money to Casement Park. As well as that, uh, it is also probably going to be the stadium headquarters of Ulster GAA, mm. of which a significant part of Ulster GAA represents counties in the Republic. Mm. About a sixth of the population lives in the Republic, so there's an argument for that, sir. There we go. Yeah. People do have views on that, so actually it would be interesting to hear where our listenership does stand in terms of the volume of money going towards Casement Park in this regard. Well, replacing our weekly big cars segment for this week, Gavin, <laughs> is a more intermittent mm. look at how AI is going to kill us, take all our jobs and ruin the world as we know it. Yeah, but well, specifically our jobs, at least anyway. Yeah. Uh, we should say, by the way, as a precursor, this may not be very stimulating material to those who are listening to the audio version of this podcast. Because what we're ta- I would say. Because what we're I talking about be is a new video AI tool. So the makers of ChatGPT, a company called OpenAI, mm. have now unveiled, they haven't yet made it public for reasons we want to talk about in a minute, but they have developed software which can create videos out of only text prompts. So this is the thing. People will have, might have seen these before. They probably will have seen these before where you go onto a site like Midjourney or what's the other one called? There's one called Crayon as well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there's a few different options around there. And there. you just type in a prompt like Joe Biden in GTA Vice City. This, yeah. actually, this actually works very well, actually. Yeah, because he, he wears prompt. those aviators all the time anyway, so it's a very easy recreation. Exactly. And it'll just but make... you can say, show me Bruno Fernandes winning the Champions League and it will create you an image which is never going to happen in real yeah. life. Um, but OpenAI are now debuting this new software which is going to be able to create them in a much greater level of sophistication than we've seen before. We actually have some, some video that we can show you. This is what happens when you insert into AI's, uh, OpenAI's new software. A stylish woman walks down a Tokyo street filmed with warm glowing neon and animated city signage. She wears a black leather jacket, a long red dress and black boots and carries a black purse. She wears sunglasses and lipstick. She walks confidently, casually. The street is damp and reflective. So, so what you're seeing on screen does not exist. This footage is entirely created with no source guidance. There's no, here is a cityscape for you to use. What you're seeing is created by a machine solely based on words that were put into it. Very worrying that. Mm. That is worrying because that is very photorealistic, even down to like sort of acne scars on the woman's face. Yeah. Uh, one point which actually is worth because it just occurred to me there that one of the tips which people have for if you want to spot what's an AI deep fake in terms of video or photo generated online, like stuff like that Pope in the big coat thing. Yes, yeah. Text. Text on clothing in particular. So mm. if somebody is purported to be a police officer. Yeah. Text is not going to say police. Yeah. It's, it's, it's usually it. kind of nonsensical. It's just some random selection of letters because yeah. it doesn't, it's language agnostic, so it doesn't know what to put in there. Also, sometimes the recreation of fingers is a bit wonky. So you might see a person who's ostensibly posing, but if you look, they don't have any knuckles or they might have five fingers on one hand because one thing AI is notoriously bad at mm. is recreating fingers. But we're now seeing that this has been produced at a level of sophistication that we've never seen before. AI, uh, OpenAI, the company behind it, say they're not going to roll it out to the mass market as yet because they're actually pointedly trying to make sure that it isn't open to bad faith manipulation. I trust them. Well, it, it, a genuine question that comes up is whether you trust the makers of this software to be the gatekeepers or whether somebody else should be standing in the way, some sort yeah, of... And, and that never level. really happens. You never really have the makers of a technology of this, you know, just paradigm-changing mm-hmm. nature. Yeah. End up just basically putting up the guardrails for it and safely guiding everyone through its existence. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, but the, on the flip side, if you try to make a government or someone else like that responsible for it, how do you um, make sure that they can do something? They introduce rules now for software that'll exist in six months' time. It's a very kind of tricky thing to do. One thing we just should say, but oh, by the way, as a precursor, not to just make this a full ad for OpenAI, they have been accused, not. <laughs> well, they, 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 they have been uh, accused of slightly overstating this because they've got a, a, a content arrangement with uh, Shutterstock that yes. they make stock video. And if you look at some of the videos that they've published, which showcase how good this is, some of the videos are actually quite similar to 
videos that are already out there. So this is a video of a Victoria pigeon showing off its plumage. This is the one that's been generated by the OpenAI software. But we can show you another video, uh, which is something that they've got access to. The other video that we can see is a video that's produced by Shutterstock of the same bird. So actually, are they creating a new video or are they just repackaging the one that's there? Yeah. So some some little caveats about it. I don't think it matters at all, but I think it's worrying that in all of the time that we've been trying to build Metrolink, this technology has mm. advanced to such a degree. Yeah. And all these questions about, oh, AI generation things is like six fingers and mm. there's like adds the legs to cats and stuff <laughs> like that. This isn't going to matter in a year's time. No, how much would it cost us to generate an AI version of the National Children's Hospital? Yeah, it <laughs> would be quicker. Anyway, that's all the time we have for On The Group Chat this week. Gavin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.